but this time, I want to welcome a returning friend. Uh, we have, some of us have been able to, to go to Jerusalem, and also um, um, Jerusalem has sent to us um, Yol Ben David and his lovely wife, not his lovely, his lovely wife was not able to come, but his daughter was able to come, his daughter Noah. Now, don't confuse his daughter Noah with Noah, the guy with the boat, okay? So there's a difference in names there, and uh, you'll have a chance to, to meet and greet and uh, um, receive some uh, wonderful things from, from Noah at the table they have in the foyer after the service. But uh, thank you for coming back. One thing you left out in the, your presentation first hour was next year in Jerusalem. Because for some of us, it will be next year in Jerusalem. More information on that coming in May. But thank you for coming again and uh, sharing with us both your own story and also the, the grander story of redemption in Christ as seen in the Passover. Thank you for sharing that again, thank brother. Thank you. Okay. Darby. Thank you so much. Um, okay, so I am, as you heard, Yoel, um, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am before we get into the Passover. The first thing you get to see is, okay, come on, work for me. Boop. Ah, nice. Thank you, come on. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, this is me as a little boy. So cute I am. Um, I am... Um, was born to a Moroccan Jewish mother and a Scottish father. Um, I was born in Israel, but raised in England and in France. My wife complicates our family by being from a Latvian Jewish family, but born in Berlin, Germany. Um, and so Noah, my daughter over here, is confused. <laughs> she has no idea who she is. The one thing she does know, and the one thing that I knew when I was growing up, is that I am Jewish. Now, for me growing up, I knew I was Jewish because my Jewish mother, and anybody who wants Jewish mother jokes, come see me after the service. Um, my Jewish mother made sure that I knew that I was Jewish. Um, every single time there was something on television, um, every time there was something in our family, anything going on that was vaguely Jewish, my mother forced my brother and I, sit, watch, you must see this, we're the Jewish people, we're the best, right? Um, that's how it was presented to me. Um, every year at Passover, so this time of year, um, we would have to watch a movie that the older people in the room may, may have seen. Younger people, I don't think you've seen it. It's called The Ten Commandments. Um, it's three and a half hours long. So if any of you here moaned because mom and dad made you watch The Prince of Egypt, yeah, shh, quiet. <laughs> Nothing to say, all right? Ten Commandments, three and a half hours long. It's back in the days when movies were so long, they had intermissions. Um, and so... I had to watch that every single year, um, and that is how my mom's, one of the ways my mom instilled our Jewish identity. When I was 15, however, um, teenage life began to set in, and I decided I needed independence. I needed to show my mom that <laughs> I know better than she does. And so when I went off to find out about God for myself, now how did I do that? I went to grab books 
because this is before the internet. Um, so I went to grab two books. I got myself a copy of the Quran and a copy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is part of Hindu writings. Now, some of you may want to know, why did a good Jewish boy like me not go and read the Bible? Well, I use the idiom that we all still use today, right? If you've seen the movie, you don't need to read the book. Um, so I said Charlton Heston and that ridiculously long film meant that I didn't need to read the Bible. And so I went and got these other books and I began to read them and I thought that I was oh so clever for doing so. When I was 18, however, still reading, not really connecting with any of the books that I had read, I was sitting on my bed with the Quran, actually, and I was reading through it and a thought came to me. And the thought was that if God is really real, I mean, if he split the Red Sea, if he created the world, why do I need to read through all these books? Because if he's real, he should be able to, you know, show up. So there in my bedroom, I put the Quran down and I said, God, if you're real, show up. And at the end of my bed appeared to me a face. And deep inside, I knew it was Jesus. And I freaked out. Right? I thought I was going completely mental. I will confess that at that time, I did have a, a casual relationship with a girl called Mary Jane. Um, to others, she's, the people who laughed, <laughs> um, marijuana, okay? So I had a relationship with marijuana, and I said to myself, okay, I was, you know, it's got to be the weed, it's got to be the drugs, it's got to be something. This couldn't possibly be real. I mean, you have to picture the scene, right? There is a Jew sitting next to a copy of the Quran with Jesus at the end of the bed. It's a little, uh, woo -woo, right? <laughs> so I said, this couldn't possibly be real. And I put it to the back of my mind and tried to make sure I never spoke about it to anybody ever. I then finished high school in the United Kingdom and went to Israel. My parents got divorced. My mom moved to Israel, so I went with, with her. And there in Israel, I had to go to Hebrew school. My mom didn't speak Hebrew to us when we were growing up, so I had to go to Hebrew school, which was great because there in my class was the most beautiful girl in the world. All right? Her name is Adele, and Adele is my wife. And when we first met, we started to talk a lot about God and truth and reality because her mama died when she was three years old, and her dad had gone on this big search of faith. And basically, religion in their home was basically a big salad of all the different religions he could find. He just put it in a bowl. And, okay, So he was like into meditation and everything all at once, and that's the world that my, um, uh, my wife grew up in. And so we had lots to talk about, and we discussed and theorized, philosophized, but eventually realized that that's all we were doing. All we were doing was talking about God, but our lives didn't look different at all. We weren't doing anything. And there's a name for people who just talk about stuff but don't do it. They're called hypocrites, right? And so we decided we don't want to be doing that. We want to be people that actually live out these ideas and beliefs that we have. And so being Jewish and living in Israel, we said, well, let's start and try Judaism, right? So we started to engage with Judaism and kept the Sabbath and, and then kept kosher. And then I went to synagogue and realized you don't go to synagogue once a week. You go to synagogue three times a day. And so essentially, Adele and I began to live as Orthodox Jews. And we moved to Jerusalem from where we were living closer to the coast. We moved in to Jerusalem and we got married and began living our life as Orthodox Jews. Now, one day, 
a lady by the name of Judy came round to our house for a visit. This was after I'd actually started my military service in the IDF. I came home from my, from my base and found this lady who had come round to visit Judy in our living room. She was sitting having tea with Adele. And then she looked at Adele and I and she said this, You're well, Adele. Have you ever read the Tanakh? For yourself. Now, what is the Tanakh? It's the Jewish way of saying the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, right? Now, most of you may think to yourself, well, hang on a second. These people are living as Orthodox Jews? <laughs> of course they've read the Old Testament. I mean, that's what they do, right? No. Orthodox Jews don't live by the Old Testament. We live by Talmud. We live by Jewish tradition and rabbinic interpretation of the Old Testament. Adele and I had actually never read through the Old Testament at that point at all. And so we decided, you know what? We should do it. We should read through um, the Old Testament. And because we're not a competitive couple at all, we had a race. And I won't tell you who won. Um, but by the time Adele and I had both gone through the five books of Moses, we had a massive problem. You see, as Jewish people, we're taught that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he received not only the written law, but also the oral law. All of the Jewish tradition that we live by today, he is supposed to have received it on Mount Sinai and passed it on. And we've read through the five books of Moses, and there was no mention of this tradition or this oral teaching. There were, no, it was not there. In fact, it says in the five books of Moses that God told Moses to write everything down, that he, Moses wrote everything down that God told him. So if he did, then where's the where's, where's all this oral law. And we realized that we were living by the teachings of men and not by the teachings of God. So we stepped back from Judaism and just kept reading through the five books, through the rest of the, the Old Testament. So Joshua, Judges, and on. Now, in the Jewish order of the books, after First and Second Kings, it doesn't go into Chronicles, it goes straight into Isaiah. So I started reading through Isaiah, and eventually I got to Isaiah 53. Now, for those of you who don't know, Isaiah 53 is the clearest picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Written about eight, 900 years before Jesus was born, this pretty much describes who he is going to be. So I read that chapter and naturally didn't understand a word. Right? I didn't get it. And so I decided, of all the chapters I'd read up until that point, that this chapter needed explanation because I was frustrated with it. So I went off to Judy, the lady who had challenged us to read the Bible in the first place, to get an explanation because, you know, it's her fault that we're reading. And so she owes me an explanation. So off I went. Now, Judy has now been our, friends at this, our friend at this point for nine months. And every single day during that time, she had been praying for us because she was actually a Jewish believer in Jesus, but had never told us of her faith, but just had been praying and had been waiting for God to give her a sign so she would know when to tell us about Jesus. Because you have to imagine that I look, I look like this back then with the big beard. Right? I was serving in the Israeli army. I was actually serving in the rabbinical corps, so where all the rabbis sit and help do religious services in the army. I was serving there. I had my gun, right? So I was scary, right? It was a little dodge. So she decided to wait and pray. And when I knocked on her door that fateful evening and said, you've got to explain Isaiah 53, for her, it was the sign. She saw this little Jesus light over my head. Okay, she realized this is the moment. She brought me in, she sat me down, she gave me a cup of tea and began to tell me about Jesus. Now I sat there going, Oi vey, I, I started, 
massive beard, right? So I was going, ay, 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 ay. I can't possibly believe in Jesus. I'm Jewish. But as she's sitting there talking, I realize, well, why am I saying no? I mean, what is the, the reason? And I, because I, I, I thought about it. I said, I've lived as an Orthodox Jew. I've lived as a secular Jew. I've read through the Quran. I've read through the Bhagavad Gita. Why is Jesus this automatic no for me? And I realized that the reason I was saying no is because when I was a little boy, my mama told me, Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. But I was like, is that the only reason? And I got frustrated with myself. And I started to say, God, I, I can't do all this reading and this back and forth. I need clarity. I need you to just show me. And the moment that I prayed that prayer, I saw that same picture of the face of Jesus appear in my mind's eye as I had when I was 18 years old. And I knew that I knew that I knew that Jesus was real. So I, I, I thanked Judy. I prayed a prayer with her. And then I started walking home. Now, as I'm going home, I all of a sudden realized it took me a while because I'm a man. Um, I realized my wife is at home, right? my Orthodox Jewish wife. Yeah, is at home, and I have to tell her that Jesus is the Messiah. Oh my goodness, how am I going to do it? So again, freaking out. You see, I do this a lot. Um, I start freaking out in the road, and I said, how am I going to explain it? I need a plan, right? I need a, a plan of attack here. And so I start walking home, trying to plan, and I realize when I get to the front door, there's no plan for this. You can't just bring Jesus up nonchalantly in conversation with your Orthodox wife. You just have to be a man, Yoel. Go in and tell her. So this is how I did it. I burst into the bedroom and I said, Adele, something terrible has happened. And she said, what? And I said, I've just found out that Jesus is the Messiah. And I did the jazz hands, okay? Like that. And Adele looked up at me and she said, oh, okay. And I said, no, it's like a Seinfeld episode. I said, no, sweetheart, you didn't hear what I said, right? I said, Jesus is the Messiah. And she said, ah, calm down, you're making a fuss. We'll get a book, we'll read, relax. Right? Now I'm sitting there like all ready for the argument, right? I'm ready for the confrontation here. And she just, just let me drop. Right, nothing. And so I was like, okay, I am going to go and force the conversation. So I went off to get a New Testament. Now remember, I'm serving in the Israeli army, right? I'm an Orthodox Jew still at this point, yeah? And I live in Jerusalem. Where am I supposed to get a New Testament? Well, lo and behold, in the rabbinical core base, we actually have all the different books of religion. Why? Because when an Israeli soldier swears into the military, he holds... Normally they're Jewish, right? So normally they hold a Tanakh in one hand, the Old Testament, and the gun in the other hand, and you swear in. Well, we have some Christian soldiers in the Israeli army, and so they don't get a Tanakh, they get a New Testament. So I have to confess, I stole a New Testament <laughs> from the Israeli army. And I took it home to my wife, Adele. And I handed it to her with this sound. Ha! Right? And so... <laughs> Good. Um, practice. Um, so Adele got the New Testament and began to read. Two weeks later, I come home from my base, and I find Adele sitting in our living room with tears in her eyes. So I come in, and I say, sweetheart, what's wrong? Why are you crying? And she looks up to me. She just finished Matthew. She said something that I'll never forget. She said, he was such a good man. Why has no one ever told us this story before?
and it hit me. Not only that she was coming to faith, but it hit me that she was right. There we were, two people living in Jerusalem where Jesus walked and talked, where he died and where he rose from the dead, and no one had ever told us this story before. How could that be? And I decided if I'm going to go and talk to people, if I'm going to have a conversation or get to know somebody, how could I not bring Jesus up in conversation? Because this is not just an interesting book to read. It's not just a philosophy or an interesting group of people to hang out with on the weekend. This is real. Jesus actually rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, it changes everything. Absolutely everything. And so that's why when I finished my military service, a year later, I went to Bible school. And a year after that, began working with Jews for Jesus. Because that's what I want to do with my life. And you can see up here, um, that's Adele and I when we were small. That little baby, by the way, is sitting in the front row. Thank you. Okay, enough embarrassment. Um, and then that is a, that's what Adele looks like today um, in the picture, just the two of us. Here are my other children. Um, there is Boaz. Um, Noah has just finished her service in the IDF in the Navy. Um, Boaz right there is in a combat unit. He's just outside Ramallah, which is one of the Palestinian towns near Jerusalem. He's 19 years old. Nati, who is my second son, he's 15. He's in school, obviously, and so is Naomi, who is 12. So that is our family. Um, but the question begs, why am I here? What are we doing here? What are we actually going to talk about? Well, we're actually going to be talking about this over here. We're going to be talking about the Passover. So I'm just going to push this little... Stand down a little bit. Hope it helps you see the table. Um, I'll push this one down for you guys. No, it is pushed down. Okay. Um, so this, thank you, bro. Um, this table right here is a Passover setting. Now, all over the world, my extended Jewish family and Jewish people all over the world are celebrating Passover this year. And it is a wonderful festival. We're going to go through many of the signs and symbols um, this morning as we talk about it. Um, and as they celebrate it, they are learning about the Feast of Redemption, right? Redemption is this, this very essential, important part of our Jewish story because we were redeemed from the land of Egypt and brought into the promised land. But as they go through all of these symbols and signs, as they go through this traditional meal, they miss something. They miss the thing that we're going to be talking about at every step of the way. They're missing the Messiah. They're missing Jesus. So as we talk about all these traditions, as cool as they are, I want you to not focus on the Jewishness of the book, of, of, the, um, of the meal, but I really want you to focus on the, Jesus of the, the Jesusness of the meal. I want you to focus on seeing how we can actually see his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his return during this meal, okay? And that's what we're going to do. So we're going to begin by reading Scripture, and we're going to read from Luke chapter 22. And it goes like this. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, so what is 
Passover. It's actually the first night of a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during that festival, we eat nothing that has any leaven in it whatsoever. Why no leaven? Well, throughout Scripture, leaven is frequently used as a symbol for sin. If you take leaven and you add it to dough, it causes the dough to rise, right, or become puffed up. And in that same way, when sin enters our life, we become puffed up. It's sort of a metaphor for pride and for sinfulness. And so we remove leaven from our diet as a way of saying we want to remove sin from our lives. And for that reason, for up to six weeks before the Passover, in many Orthodox homes, the house undergoes a spring cleaning. Everything is taken out. The breads, the cakes, the cookies, the cereals, it all has to get removed. Now, this is normally the duty of the lady of the house. But notice in this passage that Jesus sent Peter and John, two men, to go and prepare the Passover. And that's because in Jewish traditional circles, it is the man who doesn't only lead ceremonies, but also has to prepare for them. And so if you think about it, it is men that are supposed to be doing the cleaning for six weeks. All right. Now, in today's day and age, we're like, cool, just share responsibilities. That's normal. But in the, the days of yore, all right, not so much. So our, our Jewish, Jewish brothers decided they had to get out of the cleaning, and so they invented a loophole. Amen, brothers? Anyone with me? No? Um, we got a loophole going, um, and this is how it happened. The lady of the house cleaned absolutely everything in the home. All of the yeast and all the, 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 you know, the, the leaven was gone. And then she took a final little piece of leaven, and she hid it in the house. And it was the head of the household's job the night before Passover to come and find the hidden piece of leaven. And he did this in this tradition called Bidikat Hametz, the search for leaven. Now, in order to look for his leaven, he had to use his special cleaning tools. And they are a feather, a wooden spoon, and a napkin. And the man gets the stuff and he goes to the home and he says, now where could the leaven be? And he searches, could it be behind the sofa, beneath the refrigerator? No, fortunately enough for the man, his wife has hidden it exactly where she did the year before and the year before that. So finally, he remembers where the leaven is hidden and he goes to the place and he takes his feather and he sweeps the leaven into the wooden spoon. Now, remember, the leaven represents sin. He is forbidden to touch it. And so he takes it all and he wraps it up in a bundle and he goes down to the courtyard of the synagogue. There, the men of the congregation have gathered. They've lit a small little fire. Everyone comes with their bundle. They throw it into the flames, and then they go home and proudly proclaim, now I have purged my house of all manner of leaven. And that's how you get out of cleaning. No, I'm just joking. Okay. All right, so once the house is clean and prepared, the head of the household must dress himself for his service. Now, as the head of the house, we normally wear, in, in Eastern Europe especially, this is worn. This sort of looks like a lab coat, really. But this long white coat is supposed to be a symbol of royalty, right? The head of the household must dress himself as a king. So he gets these special robes. He gets a special head covering that he puts on his head. And there he stands as the king to lead his family through the Seder. 
Now, seder is a Hebrew word which means order because the Passover has an order of service, a way of going through things. And so we're going to look at that order by looking at the Haggadah. Everyone say that word with me. Haggadah. It means the telling, and it tells us the story of Passover, and it also tells us how to go through the Passover evening. So here is my little Haggadah over here. This would be how to go through the full e oops, how to go through the full evening. But you will have a shorter version in this dark blue brochure. So if you all go to the paper stuff that you you received when you were coming in. Grab one of these. It's going to help you join me in going through our Passover Seder. Okay. And the first thing that we do is that we light the candles. Now, the lighting of the candles is something, again, that the lady of the house does. Um, And so... Um, We're going to do the blessing over the candles in just a moment. It's there in the the middle panel of our thing. And ladies, I'll have you recite that with me. Um, But first we light them. So I'm going to light the candles here. Then I will say the blessing in Hebrew. And then I'm going to ask all the ladies together to read the blessing in English. So in Hebrew, it goes like this. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, asher kidishanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu lehadlik ner shel Pesach. And ladies, all together, please, in English. Amen. Now, once the candles are lit, we ask ourselves, okay, Why does the lady of the house have to light the candles? Well, it's because it reminds us that the light of the world, the Messiah, did not come by the seed of man, but only by the seed of woman. As again, Isaiah tells us about 800 years before Jesus was born, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. God is with us. And that is why the lady lights the candles. Once we have the candle lighting done, we then move on to our meal itself. Now, the Passover meal, it's not just a regular sit down, have some food, and move on. No, this is a banquet, and it can last three to four hours long. And during that time, each person will have four cups of wine. Now, not four different cups, but one cup that they drink, they finish it, and then refill. So that means, brothers and sisters, if you go to a Jewish Passover, take a cab. Okay? No driving after the four cups of wine. Okay? All right. Now, the four cups have names. All right? The first one is called the cup of sanctification, the Kiddush cup. The second is the cup of plagues. The third cup, however, is the focal point of the entire service. This is called the cup of redemption. The fourth cup is called Hallel, or the cup of praise. But it is with the first cup that the head of the household offers up a blessing for the entire service to follow. Now, in my family, we sing the blessing over the cup of wine. So I'm going to sing it in Hebrew, and then the men are going to read in unison, deep, manly voices, the blessing over the cup. So here we go. Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam, bohore peri hagafen. And in English? Amen. That was, that was deep. I love it. Okay. Once we've had our blessing over the wine, 
the service has really begun. And so we move from the four cups to the four questions of Passover. And they're written there on the first inside panel of your brochure. Now, the first bit of that question there, why is this night different from all other nights, is actually sung by the youngest boy present. Just kidding, lads. No, it's just, I was trying to freak them out, but it's okay. Okay, so I'm going to sing that first question to you, and then um, we were going to go through those questions, and again, they'll help us see all the, the symbolism in this traditional meal. So the first, so the first question is something like this. And that means, why is this night different from all other nights? Now, when the young boy sings that song, all of the adults in the room respond and they say, it is because of what the Lord has done for me. When he brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when he redeemed me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And as you can see already, redemption is at the very heart of Passover. But Passover has to tell us more than just the message of redemption. It tells us the means of redemption through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. Remember, my ancestors were instructed to take a spotless lamb, to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones, to take of its blood and to apply it to the doorposts of their homes. They applied it to the lintel and to the two side doorposts. And it was because of their obedience to God's command and their faith in the effectiveness of his provision that they were spared the ravages of the 10th plague to befall the land of Egypt. Because when God saw the blood on the door, what did he do? He... Passed over, right? Which is where we get the name of the festival. And it was an awesome, awesome miracle. And if you remember the old Charlton Heston film, you'll remember the bizarre green smoke wafting through the town. Right? But it was only a picture. This miracle was only a picture of an even greater redemption to come, an even greater Passover lamb to come. Because in the same way that that first lamb was spotless, Jesus himself, the Passover lamb, was also spotless. He was without sin. In the same way the first lamb had none of its bones broken, Luke in his gospel goes out of his way to tell us that none of Jesus' bones were broken upon the cross. And in the same way the blood of that first lamb had to be applied to that door in faith, so too must the blood of Messiah be applied by faith, as it were, to the doorpost of our hearts. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're now going to move on to the second part of that first question, which is, why on this night must we eat unleavened bread? All right, so here is the unleavened bread. Okay, this is the piece of unleavened bread. This is called matzah. Okay, this is unleavened. It's basically a big Jewish cracker, and I have to eat it for a week, and it is unpleasant. There is a reason the Bible calls this the bread of affliction. Okay. But on Passover... The head of the household takes matzah in this. It is called the matzah tosh. Now, this bag has three pieces of matzah, each one separated from the other by some cloth. I was actually in a Spanish-speaking church in Kentucky once, and I was explaining, which is a joke in itself, right? Um, <laughs> but I was explaining the matzah tosh, and as I was explaining it away to this lady, 
at the front row, she kind of looked at me and was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I went over and I said, hey, look, you see the matzatosh? And she looked inside and she said, aha, tortilla bag. <laughs> All right? So I find that that often helps people remember. Yeah? So if you want to think of it as a tortilla bag, go ahead. Okay. So here is my matzatosh with its three layers. On Passover, the head of the household removes the middle layer from the matzatosh. He takes it out. He recites a blessing upon it and then breaks it in two. He puts one half aside and he gives this other half a very special name. He calls it the afikomen. Say that one with me. Afikomen. Now, it's not a Hebrew word. It is Greek and loosely translated means that which comes later. And that's precisely what happens with our afikomen. No one knows where the afikomen has gone. It's hidden away. Sometimes at some of the services, the kids get to run around, find the hidden afikomen, and bring it back to the head of the household for a prize. Because without the broken piece of afikomen, we cannot complete the Passover. Ooh. Okay. Now we move on to our next questions. And they are, on all other nights we eat vegetables and herbs of all kinds. Why on this night only bitter herbs? And on all other nights we're, required to dip the her we're not required to dip the herbs once. Why on this night must we dip them twice? Okay, so what does this all mean? It's all referring to the foods present on the Seder plate. Now, some people have asked me if I use this to make deviled eggs with, right? Rather, no, we don't. We use this for the six symbolic foods of Passover. And we're going to go through each one of them because they'll again come together to give us a picture of redemption. The first food is this. It is the kalpas, the greens. Now, as you can see, there's parsley on the screen up there. Sometimes we use lettuce. But we take the greens, which represent life. But before we eat them, remember the dipping question. We dip it into salt water, which represents tears. Why? Because it reminds us that a life without redemption is a life, as we dip it, immersed in tears. Okay? So that is the kalpas, and then we have to eat it, which is always pleasant. And then we have our second item, which is the bitter root, right? The chazeret, the root of the bitter herb. Now there you see a horseradish root. Sometimes we also use onion. And as we eat that, we remember that the root of our life is bitter. We were born into slavery in the land of Egypt, as you and I remember that we were also born into our slavery to sin. But then we come to the bitter herb itself, the maror. It is, now we have to actually eat fresh horseradish. Now I tell people that this symbol can be difficult to understand, but when you eat the horseradish, it comes clear. <laughs> so as we eat a tablespoon, sorry, a teaspoon's worth of horseradish, yeah, we eat it, our sinuses get blasted, we all begin to cry, and we all experience a little bit of the suffering of our ancestors in the land of Egypt. I know that there are some people here that probably love horseradish. Um, I can pray for you, I'm, I don't know what to say. But the rest of us all suffer, and so that is um, uh, Passover for us. Now, after the, 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 the bitter herb, the marol, we then have the charoset. Now, the charoset is strange for all of us because we have all this bitterness, and then we come to this apple mixture. And it's apples and nuts and honey and sometimes wine as well. And it makes this sort of brown paste, and it's really actually quite sweet and tasty. 
And as we eat it, we ask, what does it mean? And they say, it reminds us of the mortar or the cement that we put between the bricks as we built things in the land of Egypt. But then we come to the rabbis and we say, well, hang on a second. Why something so sweet and tasty to represent bitter labor and toil in the land of Egypt? And the rabbis respond with this, and it's my favorite line in probably all of Jewish tradition. They say this, that even in the bitterest times of your life, even when it's most difficult, all can be sweetened by the promise of redemption, by knowing that God is going to come through in the end. Even this difficult moment can be sweetened by that knowledge. And so that's what we remember as we eat our charoset. After that, we come to the chagiga. Now, this is an egg. Now, when we see eggs and we're getting close to Easter, we think of chocolate, right? But this, no chocolate, okay? This is a hard-boiled egg, right? So a little smelly, a little stinky, a little untasty, right? But we get the hard-boiled egg, the chagiga, and it represents the temple sacrifices that we would have offered at every single one of the seven festivals in Jewish tradition. But we don't have a temple these days. The temple has been destroyed. Can anybody tell me when? 70 AD, exactly. 70 AD, the temple's destroyed, and so... No more sacrifices. And so instead, we have this egg, which is often, it's actually not a white egg. It's often brown or burned a little bit to remember the temple was burned. We then cut it up to remember the temple was broken apart and destroyed. And then we dip it into the salt water, which represents tears, exactly. The weeping over the fact that we lost the temple, the place where the Jewish people were supposed to connect and relate to God, right? And so that's what we remember with the Chagigah. And then the final item is the zro'ah, the shank bone of the lamb. Now, if there's one thing you expect to eat on a Passover meal, it's got to be lamb. But, as I said, we have lost the temple, right? And it is the temple, the place where we would take the Passover lamb and have it sacrificed and then take it back and roast it whole to have with the family. But because we have no temple, all we have on our table is no lamb, but just this bone reminding us of sacrifices that can no longer be offered. And so as a Jewish person, you look at the egg and you look at the lamb bone and you ask yourself the question, well, if we don't have those things, how are we supposed to have atonement, right? How am I supposed to have a relationship with God? How am I supposed to be redeemed if I don't have sacrifices? Because the book of Leviticus tells us clearly, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life within it that makes atonement. So how do I do that? Well, I'm going to answer that question in a very Jewish way by telling you a story. Once upon a time, there was a Jewish man called Yochanan. And Yochanan would stand by the banks of the River Jordan, and there he would speak to the people and preach to them and call them to turn from their ways. And when they did, he would walk them into the waters of the river, and there he would immerse them for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, you and I know Yohanan better by what name? John the Baptist. And one day, Yohanan, standing in the waters of the river, looked up, and he saw his cousin, Yeshua, who you and I know better as Jesus. And what did he say? He looked up and saw him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And brothers and sisters, that is the only way to find redemption today. Not by the blood of sacrifices long dried up on the stones in Jerusalem, but by the blood of one who died and who rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, life still lives in his blood. And so atonement is still available for all those who believe in him. Amen.
Amen. Okay. We now move on from our Seder plate to the second cup. Now, the second cup is different from all other cups in Jewish tradition. Whenever you have a cup in Jewish tradition, even just on the Sabbath, you will fill it to overflowing, right? You just keep pouring the wine and it overflows over the side. Why? Because it represents the abundant joy of the festival. But on this cup, you just about fill it to the top and then you take your little finger and you dip it in and we remove drops from the cup. We remove 10 drops from our cup as we recite the names of the 10 plagues that befell the Egyptians. We're removing joy from the festival as we remember the suffering of the people in the land of Egypt. But before we drink it, we learn its lesson. And the lesson of the second cup is that all of these plagues took place because of the disobedience of one man. His name was Pharaoh. Pharaoh was told time and again what God wanted him to do. And every single time, Pharaoh said, no, I refuse, I will not. His disobedience led not only to the destruction of his country, but to the death of his son. What we learn from the second cup is that if God is speaking to us, if God is talking to us, we have to follow. Now, even us who have been redeemed from condemnation, taken from darkness, brought into light, even us, we must learn the lesson of obedience. Because if Jesus went and was willing to do all that for us, how can I not follow him now? How can I not trust him now when he tells me to do something? And so even for us, drinking from this cup, not the fear of plagues, but rather the joy that one went through the plagues for us should call us to this obedience and to following him. And that's the lesson of the second cup. After the second cup, we have the food right now. In a Jewish family, um, my mom has seven brothers and sisters, all right? And everyone comes to the evening with food. And there is only one way to make your uncles and aunts happy with you, and that is to eat their food and to tell them how tasty it is. So as you can see, I'm in a good spot with all of my aunts and uncles. Okay. So at this point, I want to tell you about what I normally do, which is work as a missionary with Jews for Jesus. I normally don't come and talk about horseradish. I talk about how we relentlessly pursue God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. Now, why do I do that in Israel? Well, as you can see here, there are 7 million Jewish people in the land of Israel. But as you can also see up there, only 0.1%, in fact, less than 0.1% of the country believes in Jesus. So the reason that we're out there in Israel, in the Middle East of all places, is because so few people actually know who Jesus is in Israel, in my country and among my people. Now, I, I do this in Jerusalem. And you can see there's a picture of Jerusalem, a classic picture, a picture that many Christians may be familiar with, right? Because lots of Christians come to Jerusalem, right? A couple of million come every single year to see the city. We sometimes call it the Christian Disneyland, all right? But my Jerusalem looks a bit more like this, right? This is the market, Right, this is where people come to buy their food. This is where we go to do our shopping, to get groceries. In the evening, it also turns into a place where there are lots of pubs and places for people to hang out and get to know each other and, and meet one another. Right, so this is the place where we come to. That's my Jerusalem. But as we know, the marketplace that we actually are able to engage with most people is normally 
online, right? It is websites, it's social media. These are the places that we get to meet people. And so we have developed a new website for our outreach in Jerusalem um, and our outreach in Israel in total, you know, sort of in general. But before I explain more about why it's so important, um, I'm going to have my friend Darby at the back there put on a movie. Now, the movie might shock you initially. Why? Because the audio is in Hebrew. Right? The audio is in Hebrew, but the subtitles are in English. Um, it's one of the videos that we use on our new website. So Darby, go for that, and then we'll talk about why just afterwards. Kiam, תמיד חיפשנו מישהו שיציל אותנו מכל צרותינו. רצינו מלך שיגן עלינו. מישהו חזק מספיק שישמור על האינטרסים שלנו. אבל האם אפשר למצוא מלך כזה? איך אמר שמואל הנביא? רוצים מלך? אז כדאי לכם להתכונן, כי הוא יהפוך את הילדים שלכם לעבדים, ייקח את הבנות שלכם לשפחות, ויטיל מיסים. המון מיסים. הדרך לחס המלכות בדרך כלל עוברת בירושה, כאשר בן המלך מקבל לידיו את השלטון. ומה כבר אפשר לצפות ממי שנולד עם כפית זהב בפה, ולא חווה סבל או עוני בחייו? לכן, מלכים גדלים לחשוב שמגיע להם הכל. מלך לא משרת את העם שלו, להפך, כולם משרתים אותו. איפה אפשר למצוא מלך שיושב עם נדחי החברה ומעניק להם תקווה? מבקר את החולים, חובש את פצעיהם ומרפא אותם. התפקיד של המלך הוא להשליט סדר ולהעניש את מי שמפר את החוק. המלך נוקם באויביו, ולעולם לא יסלח לאלה שבגדו בו. מלכים רוצים לחיות לנצח, אבל אם כבר למות, אז שיהיה בכבוד. מלך לא ייתן שישפילו אותו, שילעגו לו וירמסו אותו. אבל אחרי המוות, הוא נשכח. כשהמלך מת, הממלכה מגיעה אל קיצה. אף אחד לא מציית לו ולא משרת אותו. מישהו אחר יירש את מקומו. ומה אם היה מלך שהוא הפוך מכל המלכים? So this is one of the videos that we have up on our website. Um, there are ways for people on that website to not only hear about the gospel, but hear some of the concepts, both videos, podcasts, and written articles. No matter which way you want to hear things or learn things, we have it there on the website. Even a course that you can go through in Hebrew in order to understand what the gospel is saying. Now, why would we have that? Because we have noticed more and more that Israelis Um, continue to go online to find out about Jesus. Last year on our old website, we had about 850 to 900 orders for New Testaments because people want to receive them in their home and to read about them. Now, why do we find that important? Because we don't just take the New Testament, pop it in an envelope, 
mail it off and then pray that God will do something with it. We actually take the New Testaments or the books that they order, if it's in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, and we hand deliver it to their homes. Why? Because we want to get to know the people. We want to understand why they want the books. We want to sit down, have a cup of tea, have a cup of coffee, and try to engage and learn what people are wanting. So we call this go and tell because it's the way in which we get to proclaim the gospel. Talk to people directly because they've come to our website and they want to know more. So here we have our book orders all the time sending them out. And with this new website, the book orders just jumped and we now have even more people ordering it just in January, February, and now March. Okay, so that's the book orders. That's the go and tell. Oh, among the podcasts that I have done, not only for the website, but also for our podcast channel, I've gone through the whole five books of Moses in Hebrew. But now that I've gone through it all in Hebrew, we're actually able to make short videos in English that some of you might want to enjoy. So there's the YouTube channel. It's called So Be It with an exclamation mark at the end. You can go there and look at some of the videos I've done and some of the videos that um, Jeff and Elisha, my friends, have done as well. They, you'll see them going out onto the street talking to Israelis about Jesus. It's a great channel. We just reached a super cool goal. We just got 100,000 subscribers. So it would be wonderful for you guys to go on there and to check out those videos as well. We also have Come and See. So this is where... Um, we're trying to invite people to come and see who we are and engage with us that way, right? Not as a way of like tricking people, but to get people to come and honestly just see who we are, for them to know who we are, but just to not directly engage, but to be open and invite people into our lives. And so my wife is not only beautiful and amazing, but also um, a potter right, a ceramicist, and she teaches pottery three times a week. Lots of the people that come are Ukrainian refugees, because Adele also speaks Russian, but um, she teaches people from all over the city. They come and engage, and it's one of the ways we get to meet people. And then finally, love and serve. Again, really important for us to make sure that we're not making people feel like we're tricking them. We actually just go and help people. There are lots of elderly people in Jerusalem that need help. There are new immigrants that need help. And we go just to help people, right? But when we do that, people do ask us questions and they want to hear about why we're doing it. And so we get to share. And this is a man, the man with the beard in the picture. Um, his name is Peter. And he wanted to find out why we were there to help him. He was old. He didn't know how to use his computer, how to register for stuff online. So Aviel, the other guy in the picture who's on my team, I sent him to go and help Peter. And he went, met him, helped him with his computer. But then questions began. And this was back in 2021. And slowly over time, Peter's asking questions, then ordering books, reading books. Aviel and him are talking about it. And just recently, he went to see Aviel's congregation, the church that he goes to. And in that church, half of the people are Ethiopian Jews, and the other half are white Jewish people from Russia and places like that. And so when he arrived and was able to see the Ethiopians and the Russians not only sitting together and talking, but relating with each other, he wanted to know how. And it's because the gospel tells us that there is no difference between us, that we are all equal before God. And so seeing that and seeing the impact of the gospel in society, yeah, he was really impacted. He hasn't come to faith yet, but I really would love you to pray for Peter. And so we have go and tell, come and see, love and serve. Three different ways that we serve the city of Jerusalem and serve our people so that they may come to know and hear about the gospel.
But that means I need to ask you guys to join us, to be with us as we do those things because we cannot do it alone. And so the first thing I want you to do is to ask you to pray. Now, the way that I ask you to pray is to participate with me in an ancient Jews for Jesus ritual. You know, on our front door in San Francisco, we have a little plaque that says, Jews for Jesus established 32 AD, give or take a year, all right? And so join me in this ancient ritual by taking your brochure, unfolding it all the way, and hold it up. Show me the brochures. Here we go. Hold it up. And we are going to count to three in Hebrew together. Are you ready? Are you excited? Okay, here we go. Echad. Shtaim. Shalosh. And then we tear the end off the brochure. So that was my very cheesy way to get you to tear the end off the brochure. All right. Now, the bit that you tore off, okay, this is the thing that's important for when it comes to prayer. Why? Because if you put your name and your address or your name and your email, your name and your address or your name and your email on this piece of paper and pop it in the offering box at the end, I will be able to send you prayer requests. I'll be able to send you information about Peter, about Adele, about all the things that we're doing in Jerusalem. So if you'd like to hear and pray for us, we would be most encouraged by it. So you can put your information on there and we will send that to you for free. No obligation, just so that we can ask you to pray. The second thing you can do is you can come and find out more. Now, um, uh, Noah, my daughter, will be at the back in the foyer um, with that table, and she's got some stuff on there. Now, there's some stuff that's free. For example, so Juice for Jesus is celebrating its 50th anniversary, so we're super excited. Adele, uh, sorry, Adele, Noah is wearing that awesome T-shirt that you'll, be, you'll see where, and it has Jubilee written on it in English and in Hebrew, right? Because we're celebrating our Jubilee. We're actually doing this big special outreach. There's some brochures about that outreach. If you'd like to be praying for that, that's on there as well. We also have the book, Christ and the Passover, um, which you'll have to purchase. But in here is a bunch more information about how Jesus and the Passover are connected. More than I can include, obviously, in a presentation. So that's out there as well. You can also give financially. Um, I've got here, um, let's sit this through, a QR code. Huh? Huh? Okay. Um, so you can use this QR code just to sign up for the newsletter if you'd like to. So you can just use your phone and um, go there and just sign up. You can also use it to give. Now, for us, the donation question is an important one because we have a really important rule as to why you should not give to Jews for Jesus. Now, Jews for Jesus is a parachurch organization, an arm of the church, but we believe that your regular tithes and offerings don't belong with us, they belong with your church. We believe that Christians should be investing first and foremost in their local ministry, the stuff that happens out of this church. So please, if you do choose to give to us, make it above and beyond what you would give to your local church, okay? So that's that, and that's up there for you. But now we finish this section, we finish the meal, and we have to go back to the Passover meal. Now after the meal is finished, there's something earlier that we broke and put away, and we now need to bring back. Can anybody remember what it's called without looking at the cheat sheet? Huh? The, Bob, you're the pastor. You're not, you saw it in the first service. It's for the other people. Okay. 
you're right, he's right. It's the Afikoman, okay? The Afikoman search squad has to go out and find the broken piece of Afikoman and bring it back to the head of the household. Now, once they have done that, the head of the household takes his broken piece of Afikoman, he, par- he breaks off a piece, a little olive-sized piece like this, and he partakes of it with the third cup, the cup of redemption. Now, does this look familiar to anybody? Everyone, please say, aha. Okay, this is the source of the communion service. This is where it comes from. And I'm going to tell you how awesome it is as we go through some of the symbolism. The first thing that we know about the matzah, right, the, the afikoman, is that it's matzah and it has no leaven. And if it has no leaven, it has no sin, exactly. Another thing that's cool about the matzah is, look, what has it got? It's got holes, right, because it's holy. Man, I'm good. Okay. No. The matzah is pierced in the same way that Jesus was pierced for our sins. I mean, matzah is pierced so that it doesn't blow up into a big balloon when it's being baked. But it is pierced to remind us that Jesus is pierced as well. But the coolest thing about the matzah, about the afikoman, is where it came from. As you remember, it came from our tortilla bag, right? From the matzatosh from earlier. Now, the tortilla bag, the matzatosh, has three layers in it. And we come to the rabbis and we say, well, hang on a second. Why do I have three layers? And some of them say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have all sorts of theories. But none of them answer the question, well, why was the middle layer taken out, broken, put away, and brought back? The only theory that answers this question is that this bag, in fact, represents one God who we know in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the middle layer represents the Son who was at one time invisible and unseen to us and then became visible at the incarnation, was broken at the crucifixion, was buried, and then brought back at the resurrection. And that is why Jesus held up the afikoman and said, this is my body broken for you. We then come to the third cup, the cup of redemption. Now, it's red wine that's used, and the rabbis themselves will say it represents the blood of the lambs. Now, we've seen the connection between Jesus and the lamb, but I also want to take note of the fact that Jesus lifted up this cup and said that this is the cup of the new covenant, right? Now, the new covenant wasn't very new that evening. Right? It was something that Jeremiah had spoken of 600 years earlier when Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke even though I was a husband to them. But this covenant I will make with them. I will take my law and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is a cup that reminds us of the intimate relationship that we have with God as we partake of it and as we um, believe in him. So that is, brothers and sisters, the cup and the bread that we're going to partake of in just a few moments as we celebrate the communion service, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But there... 
Then we come to our fourth cup. Now the fourth cup is called praise or hallel. Now you guys know the word hallelujah. Well, hallel means praise. And as we drink this fourth cup, we also sing through Psalms 113 to 118. And hopefully, if we haven't just downed four cups of wine, um, we won't be singing Danny Boy as well. Just, just the Psalms on the Passover. But after the fourth cup, we then have one cup I have hidden from you. And that is this one. It is the cup of Elijah. Now, Elijah has his own cup, sometimes his own chair, plate, knife, fork. Every year at Passover, my mum would send me to the front door and told me to expect Elijah at the front door. And so every year I would go off to the front door and I would open it up. And Elijah was never there. He stood me up every single year. But why was I expecting Elijah? It's because the Bible tells us, um, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Bible tells us to expect a forerunner to the Messiah, to expect Elijah the prophet to come. So we expect Elijah to come on Passover so that the Messiah will come during the festival. So where was Elijah? Well, earlier... As we said, Elijah said something pretty special about Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus said something pretty special about Elijah. He's about John the Baptist as well. And he said, if you care to accept it, he is Elijah who has come. And so we know and believe that it is John the Baptist who was Elijah, who was the forerunner of the Messiah. So we know the forerunner has come. And so we know the Messiah has come as well. Jesus, the only Savior for both Jew and Gentile alike. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we celebrate Christ in the Passover. So, Pastor Bob, I will ask you to, to come forward and to lead us in the Lord's Supper. Earlier, we were asked to pray for a man named Peter and others like him. Uh, we have a similar occasion of, in terms of opportunities uh, for us to relate to people around us about our faith as we approach Good Friday and Easter. And I'd like us to pray as well, just to pause before we come to this table, to pray for those like Peter in Israel, um, in being encountered in your ministry. And I'd like us to pray for those around us who maybe this year would be the year that we might be able to encounter or take another step with them in conversation of faith in Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do thank you. We thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who willingly came and humbled himself, even to point of death, the death of the cross, that in his resurrection from the grave, that he would raise us with him to walk in new life with you. Father, this is a life that we treasure ourselves. We rejoice in and thank you for, and yet it's a life that we want to share with others. Lord, this one man, Peter, is emblematic. He, he, he represents so many who have come to some awareness. They have heard of Jesus. They've seen the reality of the life of Christ in those who believe in him. And Lord, we would pray that in the course of that relationship and by the power of your gospel, you would draw him to yourself. You would open his eyes that he would be able to see Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him. Father, we pray that same, Lord, for many whom we know, 
There are family members. There are loved ones. There are friends and neighbors. There are people that we work alongside. We care about them. We know the hurts. We know the struggles of life. We know the burdens even that many in this room bear. And Father, we also know the joy of hope in you. That hope of your fullness of redemption to come that does, Lord, lighten our hearts even in the midst of trouble. And Father, we want these that we care about to know that too. Lord, would you use us at this time of year, maybe even something from this service today, would you use the conversations that might relate to Good Friday or Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Lord, use these as opportunities for us to go to others around us and to also invite them into your family. We pray in Jesus' name.